the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Welcome again, folks, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Right here on AM 990, FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando, sunny Orlando, Florida. Pete Paquette does our engineering today. Andrew Hurdleska, the producer, and Jean-Pierre Isbouts, my first guest. He's in Southern California. Survived uh, the storm, but we're going to talk about his book, The Fractured Kingdom, Uniting Modern Christianity, through the historical Jesus. First of all, uh, Jean-Pierre, I w- we're glad you're safe and uh, so happy that you can join me. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much. Tell me about your book. Well, uh, what I wanted to do is, I mean, I've, I've written several books for National Geographic about biblical history, including uh, In the Footsteps of Jesus and the Biblical World. But I was struck by the fact that we're so divided today in our country. Uh, not only as a country, but particularly in the Christian community. And I, I think that in the culture wars of today, we sort of lost sight of, of some of the quintessential tenets of Jesus' teachings, which is uh, love, love your enemies. We, we've allowed ourselves to be seduced by intolerance towards those who think or act or love differently than, than we do it. And that's wrong. That's not what Jesus tried to accomplish. So what I try to do is two things, is go back to the, the original things that Jesus tried to accomplish, which is a strain of scholarship we call the historical Jesus. And secondly, I try to leverage the prayer that all Christians pray on Sunday, the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, by going through every verse in that beautiful prayer, and placing it in the social and historical context of this time to explain what these what these verses really mean so that next time when we pray that prayer, we actually have a little bit more of an understanding of what Jesus is trying to uh, accomplish. Jean-Pierre, in part one, which is called Rediscovering the Historical Jesus, you write about the lost years of Jesus' youth, and then you talk about along the banks of the Jordan— and then Jesus launches his ministry. Mm-hmm. I want to hear all about this. Well, the, the lost years of Jesus is, uh, is really a, uh, an area where, a period in time where we don't really know what happened to Jesus. I mean, clearly we have the nativity narrative in the Gospels. Uh, we have the story in Luke that he goes to the temple when he was 12 years old, and there his parents lost him. But we don't hear anything from, let's say, his bar mitzvah age up to the point where he joins John the Baptist. And archaeology has come to our rescue because what we have discovered is that uh, Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, started a major construction of a large city, actually a reconstruction of the old city of Sepphoris, which was just a few miles outside of Nazareth. Now, we know from Mark that Joseph was a tectone, that's the Greek word he uses, tectone, which doesn't really mean a carpenter. It means sort of a, a skilled worker, an artisan. So the inference that we've made is that Joseph was co-opted to work on the construction of this particular city called Sepphoris, uh, together with his son. His son typically followed in the footsteps of his father. And 
Sepphoris is actually being excavated. Uh, I filmed there just last year for a, a TV series for Wondrium called Searching for the Historical Jesus. And, and we can walk actually in that area and see all of the, the beautiful things that uh, were created there, the theater, the mosaics, the, uh, the beautiful boulevards. So my conclusion is that we don't know about the lost years of Jesus because he worked in the construction of that city until uh, at, in around 2223 uh, AD, uh, Antipas switched to the construction of another city, Tiberius on the Sea of Galilee, and that's when Jesus was released and could begin his ministry. Now, uh, you uh, go right into part two, the Lord's Prayer, a blueprint for unity. By the way, Jean-Pierre Isbouts is our guest. Uh, we're talking about his book, The Fractured Kingdom. So I want you to, um, uh, before we dive into the details, the Lord's Prayer, a blueprint for unity. What does that mean? Well, the, the, I mean, obviously, in Jesus' time, too, people were very divided. And one thing that your listeners are probably not aware of is that the time of Jesus, particularly the first 10 or 12 years of his time on earth, was a time of tremendous turmoil, a tremendous uh, chaos, because the Herodian kings had placed a huge tax burden on the Galilean farmers with the objective of ultimately getting them evicted from their land. Uh, and the, the Gospels are very open about this. Uh, they refer to the fact that um, these farmers were were basically taken from their land by the tax collectors. We, of course, have a very poor reputation in the Gospels to create agroi, large estates that were then run by okonomoi, or professional stewards, uh, of course, on behalf of these landowners in Jerusalem. And as a result, all of those small farmers were dispossessed, they were hungry, and that is exactly the audience that comes to hear to speak, that comes to hear to listen to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, that is the backdrop for the historical Jesus, this tremendous socioeconomic crisis where we have so many people who are dispossessed, who are hungry, who are poor. And of course, that was quite unprecedented in Galilee, because up to that time, Galilee was a very very fertile, very, very prosperous uh, region. And so it is in the context of this great crisis that we see Jesus' ministry. And Jesus comes and says, how can we make things better? And that's when he formulates his kingdom of God vision, a kingdom in which, which is based on the three pillars of the Torah, social justice, compassion for one another, and faith in God. And we see that return time and time again in the Lord's Prayer. Now, Jean-Pierre, let's, let's uh, take uh, this prayer and break it down. Okay, here we go. Our Father, sure. hallowed be your name. Uh, fill us in. Well, it's, that's actually a, a, a wonderful way to start the prayer because, you know, there were many ways in which Jews in the time of Jesus and even in the time of the uh, of the kingdoms refer to God. You know, as, as you know, uh, ancient Judaism forbade the depiction of God. You could not make images or sculptures or paintings of God. So the only way in which you could really turn yourself to prayer to to God was through His name. Uh, and in the Old Testament, uh, God is called El, or it's plural, Elohim. Uh, then came the term Adonai, which is usually translated as the Lord. Uh, in the time of the Gospels, another term emerged, Hashem, which means the name. But Jesus says something very differently. He says, look, God is, is not such a, a distant divinity. He is someone on whose shoulder you can rest your, your weary head. Call him your father. Call him your daddy, Abba. And so in the original Aramaic, uh, our Father, hallowed be your name, means Abba, Daddy. And so by calling God Daddy, Jesus tries to eliminate the great distance that existed between God and the Jews of his time. He said, you can trust God as your own Father. And of course, that 
for him, he was his own father. So that is, by, right away, we know that Jesus was breaking very new ground. Let me move to the next step. Your kingdom come. Well, that's, the, as I said, the, the ministry of Jesus unfolded in a, in a crisis, which is not that uh, dissimilar from the one that we're, we're battling today, when we have such a gap between haves and have-nots, when we have a health crisis, when we have people who are poor and impoverished. And uh, that's when Jesus formulates on the Sermon of the Mount this unique idea of the kingdom of God. It's a place where people fundamentally change the way they behave to one another by virtue of this one simple expedient called, uh, well, well, what the evangelists call agape, which is the Greek word for love. Love your enemies, he says in Matthew's gospel, but for a specific purpose. He says, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. So try to combat evil with love. And and that's what is so important for us today, because we're so intolerant towards one another. You know, if, if, if we don't, if someone doesn't think the way we, we do or believe the way we do, we sort of, you know, eviscerate him. And Jesus says, that's not true. That That's not right. We have to be tolerant towards one another and embrace each other with love. Only then will the kingdom of God, the reign of God, come about. And And that's very different from the way other sources at the time talked about it. I mean, people talked about the coming of the kingdom of God because they were being oppressed by the Romans. But many people, including John the Baptist, thought that it would become that it would come about as a result of some great cataclysm or some regime change, some violent invasion. And Jesus said, no, it's just a matter of changing the way we behave to one another. If we do that, then we create a society based on the kingdom of God. My guest <clears throat> in Southern California, Jean-Pierre Isbouts, we're talking about his book, The Fractured Kingdom. And when we come back, we got to take a break right now. Um, we're going to come back, and uh, Jean-Pierre is going to take the third piece here. Uh, give us each day our bread, our daily bread folks we're trying to bring major league baseball to orlando you can be a huge help go up to the website orlandodreamers.com orlandodreamers.com we need to hear from you baseball wants to hear from you how much interest do we have here in central florida can we make it work uh thanks for going up there orlandodreamers.com this is the pat williams saturday power hour It's AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We're back with Jean-Pierre Isbouts. But first, these messages. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Jean-Pierre Isbouts has written the book, The Fractured Kingdom, uniting modern Christianity through the historical Jesus. And uh, Jean-Pierre, we're uh, at this point, give us each day our bread or our daily bread. Uh, What are you writing here? Well, bread, of course, is a very important part in in ancient uh, Judaism and and specifically in the Gospels. You know, there's a wonderful place uh, just north of the Sea of Galilee, Uh, where uh, they have reconstructed what a typical first-century village once looked like. And uh, the the wonderful thing is that uh, when you go in, I've been in there with with a camera crew, and you walk in there and you you see the kitchen area, (laughs) you know, sort of the kitchen appliances. And one of that is a little mill. It's It's a round stone, and you pour in the grain kernels, and then there is a wooden handle, and you move the stone back and forth, and so it slowly rotates and grinds the the, the, the grain into fine flour, which uh, a woman like Mary could then mix with water and a little bit of oil, uh, and um, 
and then slowly knead dough, and that dough would then be put in a little oven, which is also there, and that's how they make bread. They made fresh bread every morning, and that bread would then be consumed all day long uh, for lunch and, and for dinner sometimes uh, at lunchtime with a little bit of fish for for protein. And Jesus must have observed that particular process as a young boy, you know, because give us today our daily bread is such a, a core message of of what he's trying to do. I said, as humans, to have our dignity, we must have our bread. And it goes back to what I mentioned earlier about that so many people were poor. So many people were so poor that they were basically uh, brought down to eating bread made from barley rather than wheat. Now, barley was cultivated in ancient Palestine, in ancient Galilee, as fodder for for cattle. So basically, people were being reduced to eating fodder for cattle rather than the, the wheat bread, the bread made of wheat, which is far richer in vitamins. And that's what Jesus is, is saying, particularly with the miracle of the loaves and fishes. He says, you know, I multiply this bread uh, and these fishes, but really what people should be eating is bread made of wheat. And of course, the people he's addressing are the tax collectors and the other elite land who had evicted these farmers, these these families from their ancestral lands that were not able to cultivate their own wheat. So it's it's very, very haunting to read those words, give us today our daily bread, because so many people have been deprived of that essential virtue, of that essential quality of human life. Now, <clears throat> let's move to and forgive us our debts, our sins. Yeah, well, the interesting thing is when you look at the original Aramaic verse, and I start each section with the original Aramaic, which, of course, what Jesus spoke, was vak yang hovnan, that can mean several things, forgive us our debt. You know, the Aramaic word hova, or hovnan, uh, the plural, means both debt and sin. So Matthew and Luke sort of struggled with this because the oral tradition, of course, brought this sentence over in the original Aramaic. Matthew translates hovnan, as the Greek word ophilimata, which means debts. And so it says, please forgive us our debts. But most Christian denominations take their cue from Luke, who interprets the verse in a moral sense, forgive us our sins, our, our trespasses. You know, we, we are sinners, all of us, and only God is able to forgive the sins that we have committed. But what Luke is saying is that in the kingdom of God, Forgiving us our debts or forgiving us our sins means reciprocity. It requires reciprocity. In other words, if we expect God to be merciful towards us, then we have a moral duty to extend that same mercy, that same forgiveness to those who may have done us wrong or those who simply are thinking different than we do. And it comes back to my original idea that these culture wars have bred in our community this, this sense of intolerance. That is not what Jesus is saying with his prayer. He says, you know, if you want to have your sins, your trespasses forgiven, then you should be prepared to, try to forgive those who trespass against you. And I think that's such a powerful, very powerful part of the prayer. And we should be remindful of that. Every time we pray this beautiful verse, we should remind ourselves to be prepared to be open and compassionate to one another. Jean-Pierre, here's the next verse. Do not bring us to the test. Explain that. Yeah, that's a tough one. (laughs) You know, you have to ask yourself, why would a merciful God want us to lead to a test? Perasmos is the Greek, is the term that, that Luke uses. Why, why would he want to test our faith? You know, the famous story of Abraham, who was told to sacrifice his son Isaac, and at the last minute, the angel comes down and grabs his hand and says, no, 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 now you've, you've shown 
your faith. Well, why do we have to be tested so much? Well, some scholars believe that that uh, the evangelist, that Jesus, is referring to a great battle between good and evil. You know, and according to many apocalyptic versions, including John the Baptist, uh, that would come, that would bring the kingdom of God at the end of times, the last judgment. But I think that test or trial, which we sometimes translate it as such, is really the misfortunes that all of us as human beings will encounter as part of our, our lives. We all have, you know, times when things are rough, when things are difficult, and we ask ourselves, why does God test us so much when the loved one is ill or, God forbid, passes away? And and Luke says, when he reached Gethsemane, when he just in the eve of his passion, he said to them, pray that you may not come into the time of trial. And he uses that same word, perasmus. So I think what Jesus is talking about is, is temptation. Do not bring us into temptation. The temptation to giving into passivity, to indolence, to not doing anything to build the kingdom of God that was so important for him as part of his ministry. And, and I see that's, that's where the, the meaning of that verse comes, about, comes from. Now, Jean-Pierre, tell us about Deliver Us From Evil. Well, there's another tough one. Uh, you know, rescue us from the evil one is really what the, what the Aramaic is saying in the uh, original translation, in the original Aramaic. You know, the evil one is poneru, poneros, or poneros means uh, evil or, or wicked. Uh, but it can, also, it can also be used as, as a noun. And of course, for most people in Jesus' time, the most offensive form of evil was, was the Romans especially this man called Pontius Pilate, who, uh, who inflicted such terrible things on the Jews of his time. And, and today there is still evil in, in our world. There is intolerance, there is violence. You know, in 2022 alone, there were 619 mass shootings that killed almost 300 children. And, and, and Jesus asks us, why, why do we tolerate this, this evil? And so we must ban evil from our hearts. That is what Jesus is saying. Poneros, uh, evil or wicked thoughts. Let's try to ban those from our, th- our, our hearts and embrace our fellow man with compassion, with love. And if we do that, we can create an entirely new society today here in America. A society based on compassion, on understanding, and ultimately in faith in God. And I think that's really what my book is about. What I try to argue is that the essential point of Jesus' ministry was to bring about this new blueprint for uh, our society, whether in the first century or in the 21st century, a society based on compassion, on faith, and on justice. Your final chapter, your final chapter, John Perry, uh, Pierre, reconstructing the passion. Uh, what are you writing there? Well, what I try to do is really by hour by hour reconstruct what happened really during Jesus's passion, and um, when you do it with a historical lens, you know, knowing what went on historically in first century Judea. It's actually quite quite uh, uh, eye-opening. You know, for one thing, the fact that Caiaphas brought Jesus directly to his home rather than to the temple where typically the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, sat, all 71 members, shows to me that he didn't have a quorum. He didn't have a quorum to condemn Jesus to death because a large part of the Sanhedrin Jewish Council was made up of Pharisees. And as I show in my book, the Pharisees were actually quite sympathetic to Jesus' ideas. You know, the man who ultimately gave up his tomb for Jesus was a, was a Pharisee. Uh, and there were many of uh, the Pharisees uh, in the Gospels are the ones who come to Jesus and say, you've got to get out of here, because Herod is trying to capture you, he's trying to to um, 
to, to, to get you and to jail you. And so it's time and time again we see that the, it's actually the Pharisees who may not always agree what Jesus is saying, but do think that, that his ideas have merit. And that's why Caiaphas, who was a Sadducee, decided to indict Jesus in secret in his own home with a hand-picked group of chief priests of Sadducees, because he knew that if he brought him in front of the full Sanhedrin, he would very likely be acquitted. And we see that in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, where when the apostles, such as Peter, when they are brought in front of the Sanhedrin, it's actually the Pharisees who then say, no, 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 there's nothing wrong with these people. They're trying to do good things. They are blessed by God. And so it is only because of this expedient of indicting Jesus in secret in his own home that he can have Jesus basically arrested and indicted. The problem is, of course, that he, he didn't have the quorum. He didn't have the, the legal right to condemn Jesus to death. So he lets the Romans do that for him. He Jean-Pierre Isbouts has been our guest. <clears throat> and what a great guest. The book, The Fractured Kingdom. We've got more here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay with us. It's AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Jean-Pierre Isbouts, our guest in that first segment in Southern California, talking about his book, The Fractured Kingdom. Well, we shoot all the way across the country to Charlotte, North Carolina. We found David Hoffman, the author of Relationships Over Rules, Seven Principles to Lead Gracefully and Love Generously, Harnessing the Power of Relationships to Overcome Your Past and Embrace your future. David, welcome to Orlando. Nice to talk to you. Thank you for having me, Pat. So what's the story with this book? What's the background? Yeah, the uh, the 32nd version is, you know, I, I faced m- much adversity as a child, like many people have as a child, Pat, or even last night. And um, I just want to encourage people that the rules say that your past is your future, but with the relationships in your life, starting with God in the center, the rules is not your purpose that God has planned for you, and it's definitely not the potential for what he sees for your future. And so I just want to encourage people that um, they're meant for so much more. I just want to encourage them that they can change the world with the relationships in their life, that that the rules of the world are not truth, and that if they just give more than they take with the relationships in their life, Pat, that they can they can reach their true potential. I think most people in the marketplace, at home, in the community, at church, they look at the transaction in front of them. um, But when the transaction ends, that's actually when the relationship begins. But I think it's just human nature to just react and just focus on what's in front of them. That's what the world tells us, but that's not the truth. So I just want to encourage people that they can reach their true potential and change the world with the relationships in their life, starting with God in the center. Well, David, uh, the meat of this book my principles. I'm eager to dive in with you. Uh, principle number one, focus on the people God places in your life. Tell us more. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I'm in real estate here in Charlotte, Pat. And regardless if you're in the marketplace and business, if if you are a stay-at-home mom or dad, it doesn't matter uh, what you're doing, if you're doing it for his kingdom, that's all that matters. People are put in your life. If it's your neighbor, if it's the parent of your kid's friends at school, if it's a client, the world tells us, focus on the person in front of you and then move on to next. If that person needs something, they'll call you. The rules say that person, you already helped them, you move on to next. You know, you go to a hotel or a restaurant, when you cash out, when you check out, Pat, you move on to next, they move on to next. But if you focus on that relationship, if you focus on the relationship truly beginning when the transaction ends, you know, the rules say, well, that person can't add value. You know, you leave the hotel. When I was in Orlando last week, Pat, I leave the hotel that gave great service. But that was a transaction. When I left that hotel, 
there was never a relationship. And so I want to encourage people that if they give more than they take with the people in their life, those people will think of them when they need them and they will make a lasting impact for a lifetime. God made no mistake when they put them in their life yesterday. We have to keep them in our life today and tomorrow. Um, you know, a quick 20-second story. I was speaking at a real estate conference in Baltimore, Maryland, about seven years ago, Pat. And this gentleman, during Q&As afterwards, asked the most beautiful question. It was a great one that I'm sure we've all thought about. He said, David, this is a great story about giving more than you take and staying in relationship outside of the transaction, even when there's nothing to gain. But what happens if all you do is just help a lot of people? And he was kind of far away, Pat, but I feel like he used air quotes of help a lot of people. And my answer was clear, at least for me, is, you know, if I just help a lot of people and no one ever buys or sells a home from me because I focus on that relationship and not the next transaction, well, then that was God's plan. And it was even a bigger plan for me than I ever imagined. He came up to me afterwards. He said, thank you. You just took the weight of the world off my shoulders. I don't have to focus about more and more transactions. I have to focus on going deeper and deeper with the gifts that God's already given me with the people he's already placed in my life. Why well, am I always trying to seek out strangers and reinvent the wheel of people that he has not put in my life when there's enough people in my backyard. Uh, let's, uh, David Hoffman, our guest, let's uh, dive into principle number two, David. Spend time with others without having an agenda. What does that mean? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um we put something on the calendar and then something better shows up. You know, we, we commit to one person, but something else uh, can make us money. You know, I had um, a, a mutual friend introduced me to a gentleman in 2014. He was thinking about getting into real estate, but no guarantee ever would, Pat. Well, he got into real estate. He joined my firm. He became a dear friend. And in 2018, I was speaking in Nashville at a conference. And the host asked my wife to have six people from my real estate organization write what our relation means to them. And Jimmy, my friend, wrote a letter. And last year, um, last March, a year and a half ago, um, he came home late with his older son from the Batman movie and a stray bullet from some gangs outside struck and killed him instantly. He mm. left a six-year-old little girl. He left his grown son and his wife. I opened the I opened the funeral and I shared with his wife the letter that he gave me four years earlier, Pat. Mm. It didn't it didn't talk much and I put this in the book. I took an NFL quarterback story out, I put this one in. God God said this is this is someone I put in your life, even though there's no agenda for you at the moment. I met with him in twenty fourteen because of a mutual friend. He wasn't looking to buy a home, he wasn't looking to sell a home, he did not have his real estate license. But in 2018, he wrote me a letter and he said, thank you for not the business leadership. I learned from you. I appreciate that. I appreciate the value of relationships from my life. But most importantly, thank you for bringing me back to my faith in Jesus. Thank you for bringing me back to Jesus. Now that I'm a father and a husband, um, you brought me back to Jesus. And I shared that with his beautiful wife, Vanessa, precious little girl, Charlie, after he passed, Pat. Um, That relationship never would have started if I was focusing on only helping people or meeting people that could buy or sell a home and give me a commission check or be an agent to join my brokerage. And so God taught me that day to just meet people where they are without an agenda. He has an agenda. We don't need to. Now, uh, David, we've arrived at principle number three, find a way to say yes. Absolutely. So, on the surface, you know, we seem to be people pleasers. My goal is to be a God pleaser, not a people pleaser. You know, I don't want people to have the power to lift me up because then they'll let me down. So I really don't care what people think. At the same time, I was always told no as a child, Pat, and as a young man, even when I thought I had a good idea or I deserved explanation. And so my goal is to find a way to say yes. You know, we're always told no, no, you can't do this. The rules say no, no, we can't do that. Find a way to say yes, build that bridge, bridge that gap. And so, you know, I've got three little ones at home and and they want to go to Disney World tomorrow. I can't say yes to tomorrow, but I can find a way to say yes at spring break. You know, if, if my 
wife wants a date night, I'm going to find a way to say yes to that one every single week. But maybe it's Saturday, not Friday. If someone needs me to call them back, I'm going to respond before my next meal. I'm not going to jump the second they say to jump. But I'm not going to go to my next meal leaving them hanging, thinking I'm too busy for them and they're not important to me. So my goal is to find a way to say yes. Everyone was born perfectly made in his image with beautiful spiritual gifts. They all have great ideas. It might not all be the right ideas, but the goal is to find a way to say yes, let people feel heard and present and important because they are. Um, and so we're told no too often. Um, my goal is to find a way to say yes, but make it the right yes. Principle number four, your past doesn't have to dictate your potential. Yeah, or, or even define your purpose, right? Um you know, we've all gone through strife in our life. Some of us, it was this morning. Some of us, it was last night. Some of us, it was 50, 7,500 years ago. Um, and, and the world tells us to keep those chains. The world tells us if you've been abused, you're going to abuse. If you came from loss, you're going to experience loss. The world tells us if it hasn't been done before, it won't be done in the future. Um, but I want to encourage people that Jesus came as a baby in a manger, humbly walked, he was not a carpenter, but he came to the people where they were, but that's not who he was. And if you came from a broken childhood, if you came from challenges, whatever you were facing, that's not your purpose. Um, that's, not, that's not what you can accomplish. And so I just want to encourage people that where they came from is not where they're going. It should not be a, any more than a stumbling block. It could, it could be an obstacle. You know, we've all faced obstacles, Pat, as I'm sure you have as well. And, but our past does not define our purpose any more than it dictates our potential. We can reach our true potential if we look forward, keeping God in the center. And now, principle number five. Adversity can create gratitude, you tell us. Yeah, this I really appreciate this one from my own childhood. That um, you know, when, when you have adversity in your life, it could be for someone this morning getting up, struggling in their marriage or with their kids or finances, struggling at work. And, and and in the season, it doesn't feel like a gift. I mean, it feels like they're never going to be going to be able to move forward. Um, for me, my adversity as a child, it gave me perspective that I didn't need much. You know, a couple of years ago, my older son was complaining to my wife. He says, mom, seriously, this is definitely not filet mignon. I ran to the, you know, we've got a little Yorkie patent. I ran to get a can of dog food. I was like, I'm going to eat it, babe. I said to my wife, she's like, don't do it. You'll scar your son for life. And I was like, I'm going to do it because I've done it before. I could do it again. You know, I, I don't want to eat it on a regular basis, but it's not going to hurt me. I had perspective. You know, I started working at eight years old, you know, washing cars and raking leaves. I learned hard work at a young age. My mom's Health was taken from her. Her only child was taken from her. Husband left her. She lost what she felt like was everything, what the world would say was everything. But she was still alive. She still had air in her lungs like Job. And Pat, she still had a child. And so adversity creates perspective to be thankful in all things, not just not just the perfect things, but all things. And so for me, I feel like adversity could be a gift when you look back because it gives you that unique perspective stay grateful. David Hoffman, Relationships Over Rules. We have another segment with David. Stay with us. And when we come back, David's going to explain to us principle number six. Be a friend before being the expert. This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's AM 990, FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Now, here's Pat. David Hoffman is in Charlotte, North Carolina. And we're talking about his book, Relationships Over Rules. And David, as I mentioned before the break, um... Principle number six, be a friend before being the expert, explain. Absolutely, Pat. So 
So when I shifted careers um, after losing my mom in 04, and I was moving to Charlotte, um, I was an economist becoming a sports agent in Washington, D.C. Actually, Pat, you know, being in the sports world, you can appreciate, uh, I was becoming the expert in the jock tax, how athletes are taxed when they travel. And so it was opening a lot of doors for me, um, building a lot of relationships with the agents and, and athletes, and, and I was going to become the sports agent. That was a dream, never good enough to play sports at the highest level or um, was never in leagues. Um, but I was going to be an agent. And, but God redirected me for my own protection before I even knew him. And I'm driving down to Charlotte um, chasing a girl and um, who had left me. And and God put this on my heart. I'm thinking to myself, before I even knew God, I thought it was me. I'm thinking to myself, David, what are you doing? You move to a city you don't know. You know no one but your real estate agent. You're getting into real estate because a friend said, you know, you love people because I never had any people in my life except for my mom. And so that's why I appreciate them. And I loved real estate because I thought I was, I was not that smart, but you know, it was 2004 and five when if you made 27, the banker said, don't you meet 72? And if you don't have any cash, you borrow access checks. Everyone had money. And so I'm driving down to Charlotte and these three principles were put on my heart. I started thinking to myself, I know no one, but if I can make one friend, if I can show one person that I care and I can give more than I take to one person, then I have a fighting chance. But I thought about my beautiful friends in D.C., some I have to this day, and, and they're great friends. And, but, you know, they're not experts in all things, but neither am I. And I'm thinking to myself, I need to be the expert in real estate because I wouldn't hire me. My friends wouldn't hire me. I wouldn't hire them if I'm new to Charlotte, new to real estate. So I have to be the expert. But I need to be the present agent, the present father, the present husband that I always wanted and maybe never had in my own house. Um, and so those three guiding principles that come before the – the seven principles that follow in the book of be the friend, be the expert, be present are all critical for an authentic relationship. You know, you can't be the friend without the expert. You can't be the expert if you're not the friend. No one cares much, you know, because they know much you care. Always staying present. You have to be the friend first because, again, they don't care much, you know, because they know much you care. And so you can't fake it till you make it. You can't be distracted or discouraged, Pat. But you have to be the friend first because – People need to know that you care. They need to feel heard. And so I want to encourage people to be present. I want to encourage people to be the expert in their field and their craft at home, in the marketplace, in the community, at church. But first, just be that friend. Love that neighbor if it's one or a thousand. Now, excuse me, uh, David, principle number seven. It's not about the deal, but about doing the right thing. Thing. Explain. Yeah, you know, um, I had a friend not too long ago ask me why I have no stress. And I laughed, Pat, because I said, look, you know, we all have stress. You know, my pastor reminds me that the only destination with no stress is a cemetery. You know, it rains on all of us, but I don't walk outside expecting sunshine 24-7. Only in Orlando, Florida. You <laughs> three. 365 days a year, maybe drizzled for 20 minutes at 4 o'clock. But only in Orlando, Florida, do you get 365 of sunshine. So all can aside, it storms on all of us. Um, and, and, and the storm is, you know, my word for stress this morning. And But it's it's what you expect and, 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 how, you, and how you handle it. Um, a long time ago when I got into the marketplace, because I didn't have many relationships, it's why I value them so much today. But I value all relationships, even the tough ones, not toxic, but tough ones. And so if I put something on my calendar, it doesn't come off. I wouldn't miss this show with you for the world. A personal emergency is the only thing that will take a commitment off of my calendar. And so if I put a coffee on my calendar and someone wants to sell a $5 million home in Charlotte, they're not selling with me or they're going to wait. If someone calls me to buy a $3 million home, I'm going to call them back before my next meal, but no sooner. And so I'm going to do the right thing, which is finishing what I start. If God puts someone in my life and similar to not having an agenda, I don't know how I can help them. I'm going to do everything I can to help them. I'm not going to chase the next deal. I'm not going to chase the next dollar. I'm not going to chase a better fit or someone that can put money in my bank account. I'm just going to finish what I start with whoever's in my life. And so if it's a service project and there's dollars over there, if it's a date night and there's dollars over here, I'm going to commit to my kids, my family, my friends, my past clients before future. And so it's always 
the right thing to finish what you start. And um, it, it just allows for the stress to come, but for you not to feel it. David Hoffman is our guest. David, at the end of your book, you lay out this topic, the, the three-year plan. What is that? Absolutely. You know, it's, it's never been more prevalent <clears throat> to me than, than, than the pandemic, Pat. You know, for the longest time, the longest time I had this big vision, uh, but I was, I was always thinking too far away, 5, 10, 20 years out. And, and it's easy to think big when you put it so far out there because it's no different than not embracing conflict. You just push it on the rug. You're like, I'll deal with that later. Well, later is tomorrow. You know, so you push it out far enough where it gives you this false sense of security where you're going to do it tomorrow or next year or next decade. And it never happens because it's so far away you can't imagine it. And then you think, okay, well, then I'm going to do it sooner. But then you don't get it all done because one year is not enough time. And so I found in my life at home and in the marketplace, Pat, that three years, and for your listeners, I think as well, three years is a great amount of time. If anyone looks back to three years ago, they look back to August, September of 2020. Oh, man, we're in the middle of a pandemic. How much has changed in the last three years? And so I want to encourage people to look forward three years. I live in three minutes and three years, Pat. And so I fast forward three years to what God wants me, where he wants me, and who he wants me with in three years. And to give you an example, when the pandemic started, he put two big things on my heart. One, that I was going to tell my story before the pandemic ended, and he started opening doors for me to write this book, Relationship Over Rules, and it just got released in early August. And now it's actually a seven-day plan. The Bible app as well. When you follow his plan, see you, Jeremiah 29, 11, he opens doors and makes it smooth. When you follow your own plan, it gets really rocky, and it, it's, a, it's a tough road. The second thing he put in my heart three years ago with a three-year plan was we've got two precious boys, but he put on my heart to look forward for a girl. And so we started the adoption process. And during that journey, a distant relative of my wife, Pat, um, lost her daughter, and her daughter, her granddaughter, was left essentially alone um, to maybe end up in the system and to end up maybe in a tough spot. And so a few months back, I just said yes. And two weeks ago, we took custody of this precious little girl who turns 10 this Saturday. And last week, she asked me to take her to the daddy-daughter dance. If I didn't have it on my heart three years ago, to be open with two precious boys, with the fear of the pandemic, with all the unknowns, with the changing economy. If God didn't put this three-year plan on my heart to write the book, it wouldn't have happened. There's a lot of fear and trauma that came from the book, but now it's beautiful and it's changing lives. And more importantly, if God didn't put in my life to have this three-year plan to bring in a little girl, we wouldn't have said yes to a stranger who's now our daughter. And um, so I just want to encourage people, they can live their true purpose and reach your true potential if they just look out three years and walk back what it'll take in the next three years to realize that dream and then just find a way to say yes. David, <clears throat> what do you want people to take from your book and our discussion? Yeah, absolutely, Pat. You ask great questions. You know, the book starts with a few beautiful chapters of valleys and mountaintops of struggles that I've faced. And, but it's not my story. We all have a story. I just want to encourage people that everyone, each and every one of us has their own story. And I just want to encourage people that no matter where they came from, God has big plans for their life. And I want them starting today, starting this morning, to move forward with God in the center, to focus on the people in their life, to give all that they can and just know that God has big plans for them if they'll just look forward and not back. I just want to encourage them that they can do so much more with everything that God has given them, their gifts, their relationships, starting their own backyard. David, <clears throat> I'm kind of doing things in reverse, but uh, uh, at the very beginning of your book uh, called My Story, uh, there's a chapter called God Must Be a Mets Fan, <laughs> and I— <laughs> And I, I forgot to ask you that. What's what's that all about? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, I grew up in, in – I was born in Brooklyn. I grew up in Valley Stream, Long Island, like right on the Queens line. So I grew up a big Yankees fan. I was born in late 79. So 
I, I was raised in the 80s and, and 90s, and I grew up a Yankees fan. So you're either Yankees, Mets, you're either Knicks or Nets, you're either Rangers or Islanders, you know, Giants or Jets. So I was a Yankees fan. And so my entire childhood into my adolescent teenage years, and then, you know, I only got saved to 29, Pat, I distinctively remember two different conversations. One day, I hate God. And, and, and um, you know, maybe three conversations. One, I hate him. I'm mad. I'm angry. The next day, you must not exist. You know, how, how do you let all these, you know, things happen to my mom, to myself? Why would a good God do this? And, and, and so then I think I got some peace with the third option of, I don't want to hate you, and I, I don't want to disown you and say you don't exist. Let's just agree to disagree, and let's just say that I'm a Yankees fan, you're a Mets fan, and you focus on the other 7 billion people. And so you know, that was my like fun way of just kind of wrapping my mind around why would a good God, I now understand this is a broken world, he's not the author of any evil. But for me as a kid, as a little boy, I just had to say, you know what, you're a Mets fan, I'm a Yankees fan, let's just agree to disagree. <clears throat> I think things should be done this way, you think things should be done that way. And so we just would disagree at times. That's, that's my relationship with God in my first 29 years. And then you went to uh, to this interesting topic, but we've run out of time. Oh my! You'll have to get the book, folks. It's a, a good read. <laughs> Relationships over rules. David Hoffman, the author. Uh, thanks for joining us here, folks, on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We'll see you next weekend. Stay tuned to AM nine ninety FM one hundred one point five. The Word in Orlando, and may God richly. Bless you this week. We'll see you next weekend. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time where faith comes by hearing. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com.